Bernard spent 10 years in the federal prison and has become a close friend of mine through a recent introduction, but I'll get into a little bit more of that through the interview. Bernard, how's it going today? It's going excellent. Good, good. Well, tell us a little bit about who, what, you know, the why of Bernard. I know that's kind of a big picture for you listening. It just kind of painted it from a person that's gone through the incarceration to founding a, a successful company that's worked on the likes of Sandy and Katrina and natural disasters. It's working on a development idea now that we'll get into at the end or towards the podcast. And what I really like to kind of understand today is that story of how, what got you into the system and then once you got into the system, what was the changing point of not deciding I'm not going back into that right. cycle? Right. Um, so, you know, tell us a little bit about Bernard. I mean, you, you grew up with brothers and sisters, stable home. Yeah. So I grew up in the Bay Area of San Francisco in a traditional family setting. I'm one of six children and uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mother growing up and my father was, uh, you know, a su successful in life, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, so I grew up in, in a traditional household in the Bay Area and, uh, in fact, I went to Catholic schools when I was very young and, and uh, stuff, but it, um, at the same point, I um, like my my story is a story that began with with some rebellion, and um, and I think that in spite of growing up in that type of, you know, like the generation of my parents, they kind of went through the depression, and then they they believe that the kids like if you have a roof over your head and you have food on the table, you need to be very grateful, and, and right. you, we are grateful, but it's. Um, I think that my father and I didn't have the best relationship when we were very young. We had a wonderful relationship later. But in the beginning, uh, when I was young, I was very rebellious. You know, my father tried to basically dictate and my personality, similar to, it's amazing how our personalities get developed at such a young age and they really don't change. Because I think my personality is the same today as it was when I was back then. Right. And. Uh, so really, I mean, you were this creative, brilliant child that, you know, today you're still a brilliant man and, and very generous. But it, it, when you're a child and, and having this, you know, authoritarian style father figure that was like, you've got to do it this way or oh, do yeah. that. And, and yeah, you got to cut your, I used to cut my hair. I'd have to do like the, how I dressed, like everything. And for somebody like me at that young age, all that did was make me want to push back, and that's what I did. And so that rebellion that starts off as a little snowball ended up turning into this, it just it became a way of life. So I started out rebellious, running away from home, smoking marijuana, taking drugs. I mean, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area I mean, my high school class would have been 74. And so that was in the height of all that craziness that was going on. 
you know, drugs and sex and rock and roll and all that. And uh, my parents were very conservative. My father was extremely conservative. He, used, he was a former FBI agent. I, you know, we had a very, very violent relationship and, uh, and it was more him not, him trying to rein me in, but it just pushed me further. So, and that led to me being in and out of jail and youth facilities and adult facilities and ultimately I ended up um, in a maximum security federal prison. Um, you know, I always had a creative mind and I think my creative mind is what got me in a little bit too much trouble because I, I started trying to teach myself how to make drugs. And that kind of refined over time and, um, and that's what ended up getting me a lot of time in federal prison because I, I I got caught, um, I got I got charged with a continuing criminal enterprise. I um, I was making um, large quantities of methamphetamine, and was charged with you know right. be, being a uh, in con like a, a continuing criminal enterprises. I think it's like if you're in a managerial position over three or five people and there's five elements to the conspiracy you know they charge you like the, the the charge was made for charging the mafia but the naturally the government took that and you applied it wherever they could to try to and I, the one thing that I didn't do was cooperate and uh, so part of my long prison sentence was the fact that I didn't wouldn't, wouldn't cooperate wouldn't right? cooperate and really yeah, I, I, yeah, I didn't cooperate. So um, there was, you know, I just didn't believe that sacrificing other people for my mistakes was a very good uh, thing to do. Even though but I, that doesn't work out in the long run, anyway. Doesn't work out well. No, it doesn't work out. So, for so you know, your your creativity. You you taught yourself how to manufacture drugs. Um, you became. Very good at this. I became really good at it, and I supplied a lot of the of that drug for the Bay Area, and uh, and for some motorcycle clubs and other people. Which, you know, that was the reason that they they uh, that association that I had always left a, a a dark cloud over me. Even after I got out, like I ended up getting under the supervision of a parole officer that had limited caseload for what they considered to be high likelihood of recidivism or, or being continuing continuing, continuing criminal enterprises, right. right? Like they thought I would continue with this criminal enterprise. Right. So I continued with the enterprise, but it wasn't criminal. Right. So. Um, and so, you know, that kind of going through that of the juvenile system, graduating from the juvenile system, going to the state system, more or less graduating from the state system and going into the federal system, max security, you know, what, what did that feel like rolling up that day at the max security place and, and, and you know, realizing that you were just facing life and been giving a 15 year sentence, you know, what kind of, I mean, for me, rolling up to that, I was like, what the F? No, when I pulled up, it was like reality set in of my situation. You see, not double, but triple fences and and uh, gun towers and, you know, 
a maximum security situation is just that. It's like, it's in Lompoc when I was there, there was 1,100 people inside the prison. 400 were never going home. So, I mean, and people that have no hope, it doesn't create the best environment, you know. And uh, so I remember walking in the prison, getting out of the bus, and just saying to myself, I can't believe that I got myself here. And, uh, and then that started this road, I guess a road less traveled. <laughs> and uh, in there, it's less traveled For because sure most people don't start trying to figure out what got them there. After they're there, they're figuring out they're how, to survive, about how to survive. Not because it is a, uh, as you, you said, it's a very predatory, extremely predatory environment. Like the difference in federal prison to state prison is that most of the most of the violence ends up in a death, and so it's it's much more serious situation in the maximum security federal prisons than even in the state prisons. The state prisons probably have more random acts of violence, but in the federal prison, the violence usually ends up in death of somebody. So and, and it's pretty calculated too, yeah. right? I mean and, yeah. and you were you, you and I have talking before, you you were telling about you know, that you had made the decision, walked into the chow hall, it's segregated at this point, whites in one side, Hispanic in the middle, colors black on the other side, you know, and then in the back it's no Nobody's is kind of just who No, it's there. like I, people, they were waiting for me when I got there. I mean, I'm covered with tattoos, but I used to have some, I had to cover up some tattoos that I had that were probably a little uh, interesting that some people might find interesting. But it, like I associated from the time when I was in the California Youth Authority, it's very racially segregated. And, and I was a part of that. I mean, in that system, and you have to do that to survive. And but like coming from a middle class neighborhood and then going through this incarceration, it kind of turned me into a little bit of an animal and uh, out of survival. Right. You have to because otherwise you're a victim and uh, and you don't want to be that in there. And so sometimes some of this violence that you have to get into is out of survival. And it also discourages people from preying on you at the same time. So it. Um, but to your point, Buck, when I walked in that day to the chow hall and I saw a lot of people that I knew from the California Youth Authority and then state prison and now federal prison. I mean, what went through my head, I can't really even, it's like, I felt like, what have I done to myself? I felt like a loser. I felt like a lot of things because I felt like, why do I need to be incarcerated? Like, who needs to be incarcerated like this? Right. Right. I mean, they put people in there for a reason. So am I one of those people? Like, do I deserve and need to be in this environment? And so I was a lot of self-reflection that went on and, you know, and thinking and then deciding this is not a game. Like I didn't go over to the the A.B. side of the room and none of that, like the Nazis. And I just went. The chow hall was segregated and then the back, it was mixed of the chow hall. And so the people that really didn't have an affiliation or chose to not be affiliated, that's where they sat. And that was kind of commingled with the races and everything like that. 
And although I had the same group of people that I used to eat with every day, because that's what you do, right? right. You eat with your friends, and I had my friends. But it was then that I decided to, to at that point, to change, to make a change. I didn't know what that change was going to be, but I knew that I had to figure out what got me there. And really, that was the journey, was figuring out how I got there. And so I had to go, I went all the way back from the time when I was a kid. You know, really what happened is I met somebody in there, and I don't think I ever told you this before, but when you come through the system, and especially there, they give you, they do a bunch of testing. Right. And so they give you like the MMPI test, which is the Minnesota Multiple Personality Index. Yep. And so you get all this testing, and then you have to see a shrink, right, as part of uh, intake, right? As a part of intake, you have to see a psych, I saw a psychologist, his name was Paul Hofer, and he told me, uh, based on my testing, that he would like to spend time with me because my scoring showed that I could be helped. And so, because a lot of people, it's kind of like they get to a point where to deprogram where they are is so difficult. Yeah, it's, I mean, when, for me, uh, walking into prison, like the whole world turned upside down. The yeah. thinking turned upside down. Like, I was just like, oh my God, I it was. As you said, the reflection of what did it, how did I get here? What does, what did I do to deserve this? I, mean, I know what I did, but I was like, this just seems so extreme to me for what I had, I had done in my own mind. I mean, and I, I started adding up the years of incarceration that I had. I mean, like I did like fifteen years. Like like before I got to Lompoc, I'd already done. I got locked up when I was sixteen to nineteen in the California Youth Authority. I was out six months. I went to Soledad State Prison in California for some stupid thing, you know. But it wasn't, you know, it was, I, I'd say probably when I started doing uh, the manufacturing stuff, I was probably, you know, 22 or 23. Right. And uh, probably started running with a pretty hard, hard, hard crowd. crowd. Yeah, moment. because what happens is you get hard in those places, right? So the people that you start running around, with when you get out are people of similar background and similar people that are thinking the way you do. Right. And it's just a recipe for disaster. And so, and there is no rehabilitation in those places. There wasn't then, there isn't now. I know that that's changing, but it, it is what it is. It's they're not- They're making an effort now. It's, yeah, they're making an effort now, but back then there was no effort. It was just incarceration. And yeah, it was, uh, it was a time for me for despair, but also reflection and also change. And I spent a lot, I spent, I tried to spend as much time as I could educating myself. I saw that Paul Hofer, that psychologist for over a year. And uh, that led to me having my father come down Okay. Right? To the fed maximum security federal prison. That's, that was a big deal. Ex right? FBI agent. Yeah. Coming yeah. down, right? And he comes down. And, and, you know, my children got put in the federal witness protection program with my my wife at the time, my ex-wife. And um, because she ended up cooperating with the, with the feds. But it, uh, my dad came down. And, and that was kind of like started me figuring myself out and how I got there. It's going back to like, how did you get there? Right. So you have to dive deep, man, and you have to be willing to do some work, yeah. right, to figure that out. And if you want to change your life and stay it, you have to. Yeah. 
you have to figure out what got you there so that you so you can deal with what it is so that you don't go back yeah for me i had to, to face some some pretty dark times and some dark points about myself of of, of my own beliefs and things that that i had gone through as a kid and, and why right. i had this rage and then you know, I went straight into the military and got trained in certain things. And in the military, too, you, you're, you're, not, you're not exactly as a young, you know, straight out 17, 18 years old, testosterone hitting like, you know, a brick wall. And at the same time being taught about killing and then wars going on and getting sent to those kind of places and, and all that. So, you know, they, it's not exactly they didn't try to breed the rage and anger out of me. They were tuning that up inside of me. And I never, ever leaving that I got hurt and never put any of that to bed and so I still walked around with a lot of that so I understand the, the self-reflection and, and diving deep and, and having to go through that desert so to speak and understand what it is that made things happen and why to make the change and how to make the change and put certain things to bed uh, I was grateful uh, I've said this you know, I look back at, at my time, like my state funded vacation and, um, but you know, where else can you truly have to unplug? You don't have any outside extractions and you just have to deal with yourself. And a lot of people can't do it. And that's why they get wrapped up into other cars that aren't helpful and that creates this harder yeah. and breeds this harder mentality. and you know, the racism and the predatoryism and just all these different aspects that just turns that place so crazy. But, um, you know, going through that, Bernard, and then you, you went through this challenge, you became a, an avid reader as I did. You, you told the story to me that you, you know, found a couple books that really made it. Uh, yeah, I did. I, you know, I read a lot and, and you're, you're able to receive books in the institution. So yeah. both those books got actually mailed to me by my brother-in-law, but one was A Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck. And the first line of the book is life is difficult. And the book kind of explains that you have to learn how to embrace this, these painful, difficult situations that you run into in life. Right. And it's how you, deal with those situations that define who you are and the character that you have, like how you respond in a difficult situation. And, and so in part of that, like is trying to, there's this whole self-reflective thing that you have to do, right? And trying to figure yourself out because sometimes you don't like what you see, right? But you have to accept it and you have to try to change it. And so I did all that reading and I also read a book you know, that got me interested that Al Gore wrote called Earth in the Balance. It made me think because I was scared, like what I'm going to do when I get out. So in my mind back then, I thought, because I, 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 when I worked, I laid carpet when I was a kid. So myself and my carpet tools, I could make, you know, $30 an hour, right? And back in the, in the early 70s, that was a lot of money. And, and I thought the same thing. I could get out, I could work really hard, I could save my money, I could buy a piece of some type of testing equipment and myself and my piece of equipment could probably go out and make $50,000 a year. And I could live and support myself and try to get my kids back and all that type of thing. So, so yeah, the reading and plus, and you can relate to this, you're in this environment where all you hear is bad. Like everything is bad. It's hate, it's racist, it's violent. It's like, the people that you're with, this is what they are, that, this is the environment that you're in. You have to counteract that some way. 
And so the reading was that refuge for me that would take me out of that place and then also open my mind. And, and uh, so it did. And I, I got a lot of college credits and, uh, and I did a lot of reading and, and uh, it gave me a direction for when I got out. Right. And I kind of stuck to that. And uh, so, you know, ideas that you have, like in there, like I never had a job working for another environmental company ever. And even when I got out. And so it just shows you, like if you, if you, you, if you apply yourself, even from a situation like that of despair, right? And you don't give up and you keep going, right? And it's like when I read that book, A Road Less Traveled, it's more explaining that difficult things are going to happen in life, but keep walking, right? It's like keep going. Right. Well, it's become a, you become a participant in life, right? Versus right. a victim of life. Right. Right. You know, the, to understand, yes, we can't control everything that happens. Bad things happen. Not everything great is always going to come your way. And how well do you deal with that? And, and you know, the other interesting thing is that I noticed, and I don't know why this is, but you know, it's like there's scales and I, you could call it whatever, karma or what have you. But like for a while, it, it took me a while to get my scales balanced, right? To where it tilted up for the good instead right. of for a while it was tilted dark, right? And dark things happened, you know what I mean? But once I just kept doing the right thing, right? Not the easy thing, but the right thing. Right. And kept doing the right thing. Those scales tilted, my life started changing. And I don't know why, but it just, I don't know, it's just how it works.